Hello, and welcome to System Mastery, the podcast where we beat a dead horse 1d6 damage at a time. This week, John and I journey to the center of the universe to bring you the ludicrous early 90s sci-fi classic, Tales from the Floating Vagabond. John, how the heck are you? I'm great. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing all right. It is beastly hot. Oh, my goodness, yes. So, Tales from the Floating Vagabond. It's an Avalon Hill game from the early 90s. Clocks in at almost 100 pages. Woo! It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. This is a game I played as a kid because I could fit it into my camping backpack. That was the reason I had it. Was I would take this game with me on backpacking trips. We had gotten to the point where we were tired of Dungeons & Dragons basic. Yeah, no, it fits that really uh, required game book need for being small and dumb. Didn't like it very much? I'll, I'm not going to say it's the worst thing that I've ever read, because I have just read Prime Directive, Yeah, but uh, not my favorite. Fair enough. So, let's set the stage of what this game is. Uh, this game is, is like I mentioned earlier, a sci-fi game. Uh, you play as heroes or hapless flunkies or goofballs who have miraculously found themselves in the Floating Vagabond, which is a bar that sits at the exact center of the universe where the laws of physics do not apply. Uh, it's got some very simple stats. You primarily use four, maybe five stats, things like nimble and cool, and uh, you roll a d10 against your stat value. This is You roll a d10, and if it's under your stat value, then you succeed, with some modifiers here and there. So, for example, if you've got a nimble of four, and you want to hit someone with a sword, then you check your nimble of four and your swing pointy thing ability of three, and you have a seven, and then you roll a seven or under on your d10 to succeed. So that's the basic rule you need to know. That's really the only major rule of the game. Yeah. No, the, the mechanics of this game are... Very simple. Mm-hmm. The uh, the skills and the stats and how you interact with things are all very easy to understand. Mm-hmm. You can let someone know how to play this real quick uh, if you want to just jump right into playing it. Absolutely true. Then you have to start explaining the shticks. Yeah, the, the base mechanics are easy, and then there's a lot of goofy bullshit. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the technical term for it. Yeah, no, and and that is, I'll give this, it does goofy bullshit better than a lot of things I've seen. And the uh, the shticks is sort of the main, basically your character's main superpower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, primary superpower, only superpower, really. Uh, shticks, oh, we should probably talk about how you build your character at all. Uh, this game is a point-by uh, system, so you have a number of points to spend on your stats, and then you get what are called character points. They are, you get something like 2,500 of them or 2,000 of them or something. But everything costs in the 100 range, so it just feels kind of artificially inflated. Yeah, you probably could have just dropped a zero off of everything for cost-wise and it would have been fine. Right, so your sticks cost, it's 500 or 800 for some sticks. Or, and this is my favorite thing, you can pay 200 less and roll randomly to see what your stick is. So, uh, before I lose the ability to say shtick, let me go ahead and explain what they are. They are cartoon character powers. Yeah. So they don't look like cartoon character powers because only a couple of them have cartoony names, but all of them are based around kind of cartoon representations of cultural tropes, I guess we want to go with. So you've got, like, the Schwarzenegger effects or the Rambo effect, and the Rambo effect is that everyone has to shoot at you, but they always miss. Yeah, or you have something like the Flynn effect going off of Errol Flynn, where there's always a vine or a chandelier or something to swing from. Right, and it's funny because some of them are very to the point of the person that they're referencing. Like, for example, the Howard Fine and Howard effect, which is basically the Three Stooges effect, is literally you have a ready source of pies all the time. You can easily generate cream pies, which is, it just feels unnecessary. I mean, I can understand the whole notion of Maybe you could generate kind of a, a comic banter that's going on that distracts guards so other people can get past you. Or maybe you can accidentally fight. That'd be kind of, but no, it's just cream pies, constant cream pies. There's also the Valentino effect, which is that people, all people of the opposite sex automatically fall in love with you. The aforementioned Schwarzenegger effect, which is that you just don't take damage. Uh, yeah, you'll get hit, but it won't really do much to you. Yeah. And there's a ton of these. They go on for pages and pages. Uh, most of them you can only have one, but there are a couple shticks that let you take other shticks. Those are if you have a, sh- a sidekick or an arch enemy, which is odd to me because the sidekick actually gives you 
someone else to control, whereas the archenemy is just someone that doesn't like you. So the fact that you still get another shtick with a sidekick seemed kind of weird. It is kind of weird with sidekick. It makes sense for archenemy, but then again, archenemy I like as a shtick, and I'll, I'll explain why. We've talked about, literally in the last game, we talked about, uh, when we were doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we talked about the merits and flaws system, and how a lot of the time, flaws are actually merits, because they're just saying, I'm going to grab that spotlight, and I'll never let go. Like, uh, my character's a total goofball, and he has to make constant off-the-wall jokes, and he can't shut up, and everyone has to tell him how great he is. Arch Enemy is the same thing. You get to design a second character who the DM has to play to the way that you would like them to. Oh, I'm sorry, the bartender would have to play the way that you like them to. Uh, so you end up getting to have basically two characters. You have your own pet NPC. Even though he hates you, he's yours. Yeah, and he gets his own stats and shtick and whatnot. And he's sort of a full-fledged character, but he just doesn't like you. Yeah. Now, some of the shticks are actually great. Let's get that out of the way. There, there's some of them that are really, really cool. No, I, I do like a lot of them. There's the one where you get to impose physics on things, so if you see something that doesn't make sense to your character, like if you're a caveman, and you see a plane, you're like, wait a minute, that can't fly, and it will immediately crash to the ground, because you impose your own idea of what physics are on the world around you. Yeah. That's hilarious, and I love it. I love that one. I really like the uh, the one where the most unlikely thing happens to you, provided you're willing to describe it in detail. You have to make a cool check, This cool's one of your stats in this game, but if you fall off a cliff, you can say something like, Oh boy, you know, I sure wish that there was an abandoned pile of mattresses at the bottom of this cliff. Yeah. And it has to be life or death situations, and it has to be something extremely unlikely. It's the one in a million chance crops up nine times out of ten type thing. Uh, which is awesome. So some of them are really fun. And then, once you've picked out your shtick, then you're going to dive in and start building skills for your character. And this game, you remember in Buffy... How, how Buffy had Mr. Fix-It and getting medieval. And you, and you remember how we were we were getting kind of down on the game for that? This game has swing nasty pointy thing, swing long nasty pointy thing, swing really nasty pointy thing. Oh yeah, there's uh, there are gun types that are gun, <laughs> big gun, really big gun, Really, really big gun, and don't point that at my planet. You skipped, my god, that's a big gun. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> so, oh, and the range types. Uh, next, uh, point blank, close, medium, far, hand me the binoculars, and see that dot. Yeah, this this game is... It's a joke game. No, it the, and that is at least one of the things. Whereas the Buffy setting, while it is uh, a comedic show, the setting itself is more serious and dramatic, and adding in things that have goofy bullshit names tend to sort of distract from what you're trying to do with a character, whereas the entire point of Tales from the Floating Vagabond is you've got a character that's basically a running continuous joke, and so your skills are jokes, your powers are jokes. You can't die. Actually, you can. In this game, you can die, but it's not highly recommended. Unlike <laughs> unlike all other games and life, where death is... <laughs> does not come recommended. <laughs> it's, it's, it's highly recommended. Waiters come around, I suggest the death. <laughs> yeah. the um, But this game doesn't use hit points. It uses something called oops points. So, to get back into skills in a second here, but let's break off and talk briefly about oops points. You generate your oops points by checking against your cool and your tough ratings and doing some various game it's, alchemy. It's come up uh, a cool and, I think, strength divided by two. Yeah, so the average of cool and strength. Yeah. And that gives you your number of oops points. And those are the amount of damage you can take. So if a gun shoots and hits you, then it will inflict oops points and damage. But they're more than that. Uh, they also reflect any time the DM thinks you did something stupid, or any time you're the butt of a particularly cruel joke. Anything along those lines, oops points happen to you. They, re they reflect your character getting beaten by life, and not necessarily just getting beaten by sticks. So, if you lose all your oops points, this game has one of those two-minute penalty box style, like where you, you don't die, you just have to go sit in the corner. Well, you get... X amount of oops points. Yeah. Once you drop below your amount of oops points, then you're just sort of knocked out. Yeah. And then you have to make checks. If you go 
farther below that, you're making checks against your stats to see if you don't just die then. Right, but the game doesn't really want you to just die, because it's a cartoon. So lots of cartoon-style effects happen. If a bomb goes off in your hands, then your face turns black and your nose is on the back of your head and your hair's spiked backwards. That's that's the way the game works. The game wants you to play it like it's Looney Tune, except that it's got a very, very specific stage. So, back to skills. Swing nasty pointy thing is a skill. So is... Uh, let's see, what are some of the great skills? Belching for effect? Belching for, yeah, uh, target vomiting. Uh, party like a madman. I think there's just... Consuming alcohol is itself its own skill. Oh, yeah. Uh, my personal favorite is raise your children to be productive adults instead of game designers. Which doesn't even have a description. It's just they really wanted to put that joke in there. Yeah. So it is It is very much super jokey, which is kind of odd for me that it would be really, really jokey, but you also have an actual real combat system in there. And, I mean, you were saying before, when they talk about oops points, and they say, you know, this is going to happen, and, you know, you'll probably just be knocked out instead of this... It's actually really, really easy to die in this. Absolutely. Like, exceedingly easy. Because they immediately jump to these ultra weapons. Like, right away. Like, you can take a pistol or a little laser rifle or something, but then the next thing will be like the War Toy Megazooka or something like that. Which all, it's all jokes. It's all, all, all the item descriptions in this game are like floating orbital death cannons and so on that, that have a bunch of jokes about how they break all the time or how they're used by the space Nazis. So everything's a joke. But it also is extremely lethal. Yeah, they they present this game, and this is probably one of my big complaints about it, is they present it as a very lighthearted, very jokey, very funny game. However, when you get into it, all of the weapons, the weapon damage, uh, your defenses, everything like that, if you fight someone and they just stab you with a sword, even if it's not a... Uh, like, a particularly impressive, like, I'm using a futuristic vibro sword... Just a sword and they're a high-strength guy, there is a very good chance of you dying unless you happened to max out the two stats that give you oops points. Because even if you go, okay, I'm a really strong character, I'm super strong, but I'm not very cool, you're still going to end up with, like, four oops points, and a sword's going to hit you for, like, six if someone is strong and hitting you with it. Right. And of course, you can mitigate that by wearing armor or picking up dodge abilities, anything along those lines. Uh, this reminds me a lot of like an Exalted-style game, where your character is basically a glass cannon, where the glass is unusually difficult to hit. Like, you have... A starting Exalted character has the equivalent of about seven hit points, and everything hits for 30 damage. So you just can't let anything hit you under any circumstances ever. You have to dodge constantly, you have to parry everything, you have to be perfect in your defenses, because anything that hits you is going to kill you. And that's the way it is in this game. With the unusual difference that exalted characters are fully expected to armor up. In this game, you're probably... There's a solid chance you'll be playing as like a teddy bear in a bathrobe. Yeah. You could be playing as, what are you, I'm a talking dog in a trench coat, and that's my character. Right. Uh, How much armor does that talking dog in a trench coat have? He has none. He's in a trench coat. Right. Because you're at a bar, and not everyone in the bar is wearing full-on battle armor all the time. Well, uh, on the one hand, that is kind of annoying. On the other hand, this game does a very good job of, of siloing social skills from combat skills, from research skills, from magic, which it does have. Magic's just a skill in this game. You buy the magic skill, you get some fun spells. It's expensive. It's an expensive skill. It's roughly like buying a shtick. But you can be a magician and get a bunch of fun spells that let you turn yourself invisible and so on. But anyway, they silo all these out, so it's very easy in this game to play a non-combat game. Uh, They have all these rules for things like how drunk you can get before you pass out, skills that affect how drunk you can get before you pass out, skills that key off being exceptionally drunk. Like, for example, if you want to take belch for effect or projectile vomiting, it helps to be drunk before you do them. Yeah, the the game, again, has this uh, odd setup to it, where it, it kind of almost assumes that you're going to be spending a lot of time in The Floating Vagabond, this bar. And it goes into detail on what's in the bar, the patrons that you find there, how the bar came to be, and it even says in the book that this is going to sort of be your default setting. But then it gives you all of these, I mean, skills and weapons and armor and other antagonists like the space Nazis, like you mentioned. Yeah. 
and all these things that are in this universe. There's a competing bar on another planet. The crane's nest. And uh, it, it gives you a lot of stuff that it kind of wants you to go explore this universe, but at the same time assumes that you won't and will just sort of be in this bar. Yeah. And it gives you a number of Mary Sue kind of DMPCs that are introducing you to one of the chapters. So each chapter has a DMPC that stops starts by saying, like, Hi, welcome to the game. I'm Arethon Kincaid. I'm basically Han Solo Indiana Jones. I have an awesome car that you can't have because there's only two of them, and I have a super gun, and also here's how combat works. Yeah. So that's each one of these. So all these characters are supposed to be in this bar all the time. You're supposed to have Arethon Kincaid, adventurer extraordinaire. You're supposed to have Gumshoe, the aforementioned dog in a trench coat detective character, uh, the bartender Hawk Spit Luger. Yeah. Oh, Hawk Luger, you can call me Spit. Yeah. He's your bartender. The game has this whole setup it really, really wants you to play in The Floating Vagabond. It's called Tales from the Floating Vagabond. The whole book is written around the notion that you're going to start there. It's got rules for the way The Floating Vagabond operates. For example, the first drink is free. When you arrive at The Floating Vagabond, nothing comes with you, so you end up in a bathroom and you have to put on a towel because the dispenser that has pants in it is broken. And then you walk out in a towel, and this guy walks up to you. He's described as the world's ugliest bartender, and the picture does a pretty good justice of that. It gives him a weird head bridge. And he'll walk up and say something like, I'm Hawk Luger, and you can call me Spit, and the first drink's on the house, and what are you having? And that's that's supposed to be the way this game kicks off, which is neat. It's an interesting concept for an adventure. I don't know if I'd want to do that. That's the funny thing to me about this game, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, is would I play this game twice? Yeah. Uh, and again, it's it's sort of a funny, interesting way for a character to be introduced to, like, okay, you show up naked in this bar and you have to wrap yourself in a towel and get drunk and try to find out what's going on. But for, you know, four or five people to show up and all of them be like, okay, there's, like, a caveman and there's a spaceman and there's a professional stuntman from Hollywood, and everyone's got these weird characters from all of these different things, and then all of them show up, all of them have the exact same experience getting there, even though they're all these wildly different characters. It just... It feels a little too samey for a game that really wants to be very different from all the other games. Absolutely. So much so, and this is going to be a quick diversion here, that the races that you can play as, because the game has a build-your-own-alien category, a generic set of statistics for humans, and then it's got the following races. You've got dogmen, which are humanoid dogs. So, great. Good job, furries. Here's a game for you. Enjoy it. Uh, rhino skins. That's humanoid rhinos, which are big and dumb and strong. So, perfect for if you want to play as whichever one of those two guys was the rhino. Rocksteady? Yes, you got it right. Woo! Not Bebop! No boar man in this game, though, so you can't play as Bebop. Disgustingly cute furry thing, which is basically an Ewok, uh, like a little tiny cute Ewok. They they get an extraordinarily high luck stat. Uh, and then the other two races that you can play are elf and dwarf. Yeah, you can just be an elf or a dwarf. Because it's a role-playing game, and I like to think that's what they were thinking when they wrote this. They were like, you know what, it's a role-playing game, it's 1991, if we don't put elves and dwarves in this... Everyone's going to be all kinds of pissed off. Yeah. You know what just hit me? This game is two years older than the game that we, we are doing next uh, week. Uh, Which is... Sorry, everybody. We've been reading up for our next game, and it's bad. It's <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's terrible. <laughs> it's real bad, and it feels like a throwback game. It feels like you're basically reading a big farting pile of 1977. But it's... No, it's from 93. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to Prime Directive. Uh, so... Elves and dwarves, here's the way the races work. They're, they are set templates, and you have to purchase stats in this game. You use a point-by system to buy your stats. Races, like dwarf, for example, can purchase certain stats at half cost up to a certain level. And then it's more expensive for other stats past a certain level. Exactly. So, for example, a dwarf, his attribute costs are strength at half cost up to four, and common sense at half cost up to two. And since you have to buy at least one stat in each thing, that means all dwarves have at least a common sense of two. 
Uh, they pay their, their regular point cost to get up to that point. And then strength at half cost up to four. Nimbleness costs double after five, because they can get pretty nimble, but not super nimble. And cool costs double after four, because dwarves are not cool. No, they are not. Yeah. If there's one thing that I have learned from The Hobbit, it's that dwarves are not cool. No, they're comedy relief. Uh, <laughs> they, they will eat your cheese by God and then clean your dishes. <laughs> so... And then it does have a little section for building your own alien race. So if you really want to play as a Klingon or just a bug-eyed monster of some kind, then you can do that. So you've got you can play as all these wacky aliens. Now the problem I have with the races in this book is uh again one of those problems I have with any point by is that in this game instead of having the uh the mechanic where you've got the merits and penalties you just have merits, essentially, but your race can give you the extra points that you would normally get from having a uh, penalty. Mm-hmm. So let's say you go, what do I want to play? I want to play a super strong guy, he has a club, and he just beats the crap out of things with that. Okay, there is literally no reason not to be a rhino skin, because it is going to give you just a crap load of free points because you weren't going to be putting high scores in the things that cost double, but you were going to get high points in the things that are half. So it's just a benefit. There is no reason to be human in this game at all. It is the worst thing you could do. Uh, you know, that's generally true of a lot of older role-playing games. When they, when they build their alien races, they make them either better or worse. They don't really have a very good grasp of how to do them right. Um this crops up a lot in the Dungeons and Dragons games, for example. In second edition, if you were playing second edition D and D by the book, if you weren't playing a human, you were a goddamned idiot. Oh yeah, no, it was most games either decided humans are the best, and anyone else is just trying to play catch up, and maybe you've got some little advantage, or humans are terrible, and everyone else is amazing. Right. Like, uh, for example, 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons has... Th- there's one of the little problems you run into is it, it uses the humans are more flexible rules, so they get a plus 2 floating stat, and then they get an extra feat. And you only need to be a human in that game in certain corner case builds. Like, it's really obvious whether or not you should play a human. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting. In this game, there's really not a whole lot of reason to play a human. On the other hand, this is a great example of a game where there's really not a whole lot of reason to play to win. See, and that's... This is my issue with Tales from the Floating Vagabond, is I look at this game, and the gamer part of me looks through these rules and goes, I can easily break everything in this game wide open. Like, all of the, you look at all of the shticks, and you can look at ones and go, okay, well these ones are just amazing in almost every scenario, instead of the, like the I'm gonna throw cream pies one, you take Schwarzenegger effect, you get to be a rhino skin, you get high stats in the swing, long, nasty, pointy thing, and all of a sudden, you're super amazing. But, like you say, the game doesn't want you to do that. It's it's this weird temptation to be like, okay, you've got all of these ways that you can just completely destroy this game, but don't. Do it, because it doesn't matter. No, and, and, and that, to me, actually is not a terrible balancing mechanism. If, if uh, for say, for example, you felt like building that character. You got your rhino skin, you gave him a chainsaw, you gave him the super battle armor. He's more or less indestructible. Okay, great. Is he funny? Because that's what the game wants. Your first, your first two adventures are going to be a drinking contest against teddy bears, and then a scene where you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then a scene where you have to go to an alien planet that's shaped like a pill. Like it's a giant gel cat planet. It, what's your rhino going to do there? That's hilarious. And that's, you know what? If you build that rhino character, you're basically building the big dumb villains that Bugs Bunny is always thwarting. And, and again, I feel like the, the game is sort of split in this. Because the very, the themes, like you say, it's saying you're gonna have a lot of stuff that isn't combat, this isn't a, you know, a dungeon crawler type game where everything is based around beating the crap out of things and being a murder hobo. But, that being said, it also presents, like, one of the very first things when it gives you the, now let's see these characters in action. The first thing is, this group fighting against space Nazis, 
and one of the people playing what is basically an intelligent slime... He just dies! He just immediately gets punched in the head and is knocked unconscious and does not do anything for the rest of the encounter. Yeah, I mean, this thing is less than a full page of text. And you've probably, as our listeners, if you've played any role-playing games or read the books, you no doubt have skimmed briefly over those sections where they role-play the game for you. Where, like, you know, oh, Annie... And it's always... It's always like a, a high school math text, like, word problem in terms of the fact that the names don't actually sound like a role-playing group. It's always like, like, Carlos, Annie, uh, dances with beavers, and, and, uh, Eunice are playing the game. And in this case, it's, it's, they don't even give them the names. They give them the, the names of their characters, and that's fine. But, um, anyway, to get back to the original point, you've skipped over these because they're boring and stupid and you already know how to do a role-playing game. But this one, yeah, it has a character playing as, Guzik the Sentient Slime Mold. He has the Escher effect, which means that he ignores real-world physics and he can, like, slip through doorways and stuff like that because he's a slime. Yeah, he can, like, go up walls and on things. He can just sort of defy physics. Yeah. And uh, he tries to go underneath the guards. There's a scene where they're fighting some space Nazis, which is one of the major villains in this game. And uh, he tries to go underneath a door... Gets noticed, gets shot, and let's... Oh, yeah, here it is. He gets stepped on. He gets stepped on for four oops points, goes unconscious, and spends the rest of the thing unconscious. Yep. He does nothing else during that game. He gets hit once, is unconscious, and he was trying to do something funny. Yeah, no, that that is my problem with it, is the main uh, example of, like, let's see what these rules look like when you're actually playing, is it looks terrible. Yeah. It looks like you try to do something funny and are immediately punished for it. Well, you know, this is something you run into when you're playing these comedy role-playing games, and I love them because I love reading these books, but playing them is a lot worse, because all the jokes are already done by the time you actually roll a die. You've designed a character with a wacky name and a wacky power and wacky spells with wacky skills... Is any fun to say those over and over again while you're doing them? No, it's awful. It's so annoying to say, oh, I'm going to use swing nasty pointy thing at that thing. What rage is it in? Oh, it's at see that dot. Uh, oh, well, I can't hit it with that, so I guess I walk over towards it. Um, hilariously? Yeah, and they, I think the only thing in that, uh, that little how you play the game section that was good was there was the one character that continually narrated what he was doing out loud. And it's a power that he has, because there's a shtick that gives you that, that gives you kind of backstory narration. Like what you were saying earlier, the shticks are easy to pick the ones that are powerful combat effects, like the Schwarzenegger effect, versus the ones that are funny cartoon effects. So, for example, you can have the Rodgers and Hammerstein, which is literally a... Just a musical. Musical. You, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's music following you around. You have your own soundtrack. Yeah, you, well, I think you get either the people breaking the song around you, or you have a soundtrack that follows you around, and it you always want the soundtrack, because the soundtrack effect, oh, what's that, screechy violins are happening, I know there's danger yeah, here. Yeah, or, or everything's shifted into a lower tempo, which means that there's about to be a murder or something. So it's actually a, a useful warning effect, as long as you continually remember to remind your DM that you have that, so that they have to constantly tell you what your music is like, which sounds... Not, not funny at all. So then that, that's one of the problems you run into with games like this, is that they don't stay funny past reading them and designing your character. Yeah, in, that's I think that's my main issue with the shticks. Is the shticks, even if they're funny, even if you pick one that's like, I'm not trying to break the game, I'm just going to take one of these ones that does a goofy effect, it lets me be funny in the game, whatever. The problem is, the XP in this game, you can't get another shtick, you can't change your shtick. All you can do is get more skills, which means for the entire life of this game, even if in the first session your shtick was funny, that's all you're going to do from now on. And it would be like, okay, I'm going to watch Yosemite Sam. Oh, this this was sort of a funny cartoon. Okay, now watch four hours of straight Yosemite Sam cartoons, then come back next week and do it again. And he can only do one of his regular Yosemite Sam tricks. Like, for example, you can either choose between he can shoot his guns at the ground and sort of float into the air as the power of bullets hitting the ground, or his butt can light on fire and then be put out in nearby puddles of water. You can have one of those. Yeah, it it's just really limiting in how you can be funny. Yeah. Like, you have to pick how your character is funny at the start, and that's it. 
That is how you will be funny at the world. Right. And one of the examples, I'll I'll run through a shtick here just as an example. The trench coat effect. The trench coat effect gives your character a big trench coat, and the trench coat always has all kinds of stuff in it. There's a solid chance you'll be able to get whatever you need out of your trench coat just because it's already been there for a while. So you can use it to put stuff away, but also you can just reach in there. Oh, I need a spatula. So you reach around and fish out and get a spatula. That's that's it. That's what you get. It's a pretty simple effect. It's easy to describe. It's easy to use in play. And it's probably easy to abuse if you just constantly go in for hand grenades, I guess. But Well, yeah, but it, I mean, it also does have a correlation yeah. to cartoons, that hammer space of... I just pull out a hammer that's larger than I am from my pocket, that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's all it is, and that's that's your character's primary power. And then, just imagine yourself thinking, okay, well, let's see, Bugs Bunny is constantly pulling a giant hammer out of his non-existent back pocket, but is it funny when he does it the whole time, forever, and that's the only thing he can do? No, it's not. And then, this is another thing I love about these, a lot of the shticks have counter-effects, stuff that basically punishes you for using your shtick a little too often. So your character has one shtick, and if, for example, you have the trench coat effect, and you really want to just constantly be pulling out hand grenades, your your uh, bartender is encouraged to start replacing your hand grenades with, like, live weasels and mouse traps. Yeah, because for any of the shticks that actually give you something powerful, some effect that's actually going to give you an in-game benefit, a lot of them have roles. So, I mean, like with the, the slime mold trying to do his Escher effect to get under a guy and failing it, you could just fail to do something. So if you're trying to do the trench coat effect, you could fail at getting something out of your trench coat and just be like, what did you get? Well, instead of the gun you were trying to pull, you got a cupcake. I'm sorry. At least the cupcake is delicious. Or maybe you get a hostess fruit pie and that will stop him from robbing the bank. Yeah. So, it... It tries to be funny, and then it doesn't want you to constantly use only your shtick as your character joke, which is fine. I don't want you to do that either. That sounds awful. But it's funny that it chooses to punish you. Like, for example, here's the trench coat effect. This is the penalty to the trench coat effect if you're overusing your shtick. Objects become hard to find, requiring a considerable amount of time and effort to find the correct item. Alternately, hostile items such as ticking time bombs, small vicious animals, etc. may be pulled out by accident. Same thing is supposed to happen if someone is searching you. They're supposed to constantly reach into your trench coat and pull out mouse traps, bear traps, uh, bombs, things like that. It's supposed to be a nice, funny joke. This happens for most of these. Um, I don't know. I just, I just don't know that I necessarily find the concept functional. I feel like if you want to design a game where the characters are basically walking cartoons, you could get away with doing it without limiting them to one cartoon joke. Yeah, it. I mean, like I said, it just feels. The fact that you can't even use XP to get some other effect yeah, or, or enhance the effect. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much set in stone. If you've got music following you around, you will always have music following you around. Yeah, if you can, you know, break the laws of physics, that's what you get. You know, you can, uh, if you run over a cliff and you don't notice, you don't look down, you just keep running on air, you know, yeah, okay, that's kind of funny. Sure, you know, the, the coyote does that occasionally. That's sort of amusing. But like I said, if you're watching four hours of Roadrunner cartoons, and that's essentially what your session is going to be, is just four hours of watching the same cartoon over and over again, and if someone comes up to you and goes, next week, let's do this again, I don't see what the incentive is to keep doing it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This is going to crop up anytime we're reviewing a comedy-based role-playing game, and there are a couple of them out there, and some of them are better than others, uh, that the goal is that they wanted to really write a funny book. And, you know, to a certain extent, they definitely succeeded with this. This book's got some interesting cultural cachet. It's fun to read. I've met other people who played it and have fond memories of it. Uh, I I don't feel like it would generate an especially fun gameplay experience, but it's fun to flip through and be like, ah, look at that. It's got some funny cartoon drawings. It's got some fun descriptions. They create a world where I wouldn't mind watching a cartoon episode of the world. But that's because cartoons are four minutes long. (laughs) Yeah, the... uh... And, you know, for as, for as much as I am just shitting all over this game, uh, and for the same reason that I shat all over Buffy for its tone, the tone in Tales from the Floating Vagabond is along those lines of we're trying to do a voice and talk to the reader, but it works so much better in Tales from the Floating Vagabond. You actually have some funny 
plays on uh, the skills and the universe and the shticks and what's going on, and that buddy-buddy jokey voice works so much better for a game like this than it does for Buffy. That's absolutely true. There are certain strong po- or, or positives to this game. Like I said, the rules are simple and easy to explain, easy to understand. You can pick up and play this game in 20 minutes, even if you weren't an especially experienced role player. I also really like the floating vagabond. I hate to admit it, but it's an, uh, it's an amazing <laughs> setting. It's an awesome setting. It's got a grumpy old bartender. It's got special rules for magic drinks he can serve you that only he can make that do awesome things. Uh, one of my favorite things about the, the concept of the floating vagabond is that he bought this space in the center of the universe when it was cheap and built this bar, and now he kind of runs it as a place, like a, the hive of scum and villainy for all the world's a universe's outcasts to come live. And um, in order to make that work, he purchased a magic or super technological uh, life support system, which he installed in the roof of the bar so anyone can see it. And the rules for the life support system are, if you can see it, you're alive. <laughs> and I love that. It says that for about 400 miles in any direction from the floating vagabond, you can't die from being out in space. <laughs> you can breathe. You can kind of orient yourself up and down. You don't just fall. You can get onto... Gravity works in a way that is convenient to you. And I love that concept, that it's just, oh, this gives you this huge playground where you can be standing on an asteroid and shooting at a guy on a different asteroid, and it just works. Because if you happen to look over in that direction, there's that life support system, and it does that. That's its job. Yeah. No, like, like I said, I think the, the jokey aspects of this really work. I think they set up a universe that is genuinely funny. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's sad because I would love to read, for example, a comic book set in this world. I'd love to read the adventures of Arethon Kincaid and Gumshoe, the, the dog detective, or the dog detective, uh, that is set where they start in this floating vagabond bar, and then they go off and they fight Trask, the leader of the evil space Nazis, and the bikini girls with machine guns, and the bug-eyed monsters, and all the other various villains that are in this thing. Because it's fun, and and with a good writer, this game setting is really, really solid. It's a great place to start a story. I don't feel like that's... Ne- you know what? Here's a great thing. Great way to put it. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Yeah. Awesome books. And it's because Douglas Adams has this amazing capacity to write. He's a really solid punster. He knows how to how to set up and knock down a story. He knows how to set up a joke two books early and then knock it knock it out of the park two books later. Yeah. I would love to read stories about the bar at the end of the universe from those. or the bar at the end of time. From the, whatever it was called. Yeah. Uh, Millaways. However... I don't think I could do a very good job of speaking in that Douglas Adams voice for any length of time. Well, the problem is, you also have one author's voice in those books, as opposed to five people all trying to be zany at the same time. Yeah. It's, like, you know, I I don't think I could just speak in Zaphod Beeblebrock's dialogue just off the cuff. I can't do it. I mean, even if I'm a funny guy, I'm not a 100% on-all-the-time comedy writer, and that's what the game wants, in order for you to be funny. Yeah, and, I mean, in that same way, uh, like, I love the Discworld novels from Terry Pratchett, and they did make a GURPS Discworld. You can actually play in Discworld. Oh, yeah, I have it. Yeah, but the problem is, being in that world, you aren't Terry Pratchett, you aren't that funny as a person... And again, you don't have control of everyone else. Yeah. And even if, you know, you're not trying to do something like, okay, everyone is playing established members of the Night Watch. If you meet the Night Watch and you as, you know, the Game Master are trying to now be Vimes or Carrot or whoever, you're trying to off the cuff what takes Pratchett a while to actually write down and work on. Yeah, and it's not going to flow. I mean, you get, you have the basic concept down. Like, you can play Vimes as kind of stoic and bitter and unhappy, and you can play Nobby as gross, but it, it's not the same, and it's not going to be as funny. Also, the whole thing about this book, about uh, Discworld, about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is that combat resolves itself in the funniest way possible. Uh, if it's funny for the fight to end immediately when Carrot says, hey, stop that, yeah, then then it does, and that's awesome. This book doesn't work that way. If you if you yell, hey, stop that, the space Nazis, they're just going to shoot you and you'll fall unconscious immediately. <laughs> because it's still a role-playing game and there still has to be combat and there still has to be conflict and resolution, or else what are you doing? You're just having a little improv session. And I think that's one of those, uh, those problems with the uh, resolution in this game, 
is, like you say, you want to do things funny. You want to have tests where it's like, okay, we're going to do, whether it's combat or a drinking game or playing darts in the bar or something like that. You want to have it be resolved in a funny way, but because it's a role-playing game, because it has mechanics for all of these skills, because you're a player playing a game, whatever you think would be funny is not necessarily what the dice are going to have happen. Yeah. And that's going to be a real disappointment to you, and it would have been absolutely the funniest thing in the world for you to nail that space Nazi with your cream pie, and you just don't. Yeah, you, whoops, I rolled a 10, it went sailing past him, nothing happened, and then he shot me and I'm unconscious for the rest of this combat. Woo! Wee, I'm going to go get a drink, you guys keep playing. That's some writing. So, in order to stop that, the goal, or the, the mindset of the common player is to go, well, I'm going to play that Rhino character that John was describing earlier. I'm going to make a character who's got the Schwarzenegger effect so he can't die, and he's got a giant axe, and he's got super armor, and his strength is eight, and he's just always going to hit. But why would you do that? The game is comedy. You're trying to make a joke, not, not, not a beat stick character. And I, I feel like that's going to be the thing that brings us down to the tone, or, or the, the topic of this week's trope discussion for gamers, <laughs> which is people who try to beat the game they're playing. Which is nothing wrong with it. I'm I'm extremely guilty of doing this. I know you are extremely guilty of doing that. Yeah. So, this game blocks me at every turn. It's like the one game that's my kryptonite. Because normally, if you knew me as a role player, you know that I like to figure out the... Or even if I'm doing it on accident, I'm a natural-born power gamer. I know exactly... I always seem to be gravitating right towards the things in the book that are either poorly written or broken or were optimized perfectly to, to work a little better than the rest of the book. I always find it. Well, it's, it's also uh, you and those characters that uh, take things probably one step farther than they needed to. So, let's say you have a character, and you're playing someone that is a fighter. You've got a sword. Okay. Uh, you use a few feats, you've got some stuff, you've got some powers. You're really good at using that sword. But wait. I've now discovered that if I have this feat with this type of magic sword and and this podcat, all of a sudden, I'm invincible. Oh, what do you know? Yeah. And, and you know, in my own mind, I try to tell myself I'm doing it from, like, an instru- instructive sort of mindset. Like, I'm going, well, I'll show everyone how broken the magic in this game is, and then no one will break the magic. All I need to do is break magic in front of everybody. It doesn't really matter, the rules for it, but this game breaks me at every turn because every time I read it, the first thing that pops through my head is, why? Why am I trying so hard to beat this? Like, the next session is going to be a fight against, like I said before, the drinking contest against teddy bears. Or some other random, you have to go to the the universe that pies came from in the first place and go swimming into the pie equilibrium and find the piemen. (laughs) Yeah, and that's, it's got this, this odd back and forth between that, because, I mean, like you say, those those instances where you do want to be a character that sort of breaks the system, if you aren't one, it's very, die. Yeah, no, it's, it's very easy to either die or just sort of be sitting out large swaths of what's going on, but if you do make a character that's like that, you, you're going to sit out large swaths of what's going on because you don't have a character that can interact in a meaningful way with the rest of the comedy universe. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm super guilty of being the win-at-all-cost style players. But like in Dungeons and Dragons, I, I love to just sit there and build the character classes. They're like, what do you do? Oh, I use spiked chains, and anyone within 15 feet of me is knocked down at all times. Yeah. I, and, and that's the sort of thing where I need to come to terms, and, and other gamers who do this need to come to terms with the fact that that's not the point. No, I think a lot of gamers, uh, especially either very first-time gamers yeah. who come to it not from the sense of role-playing, but of playing games in general, where the point is to win, yeah. come to that the, the RPG session with, I need to win. If I'm not optimized or invincible or able to deal infinite damage on a combo, or what have you, I'm not playing the game right, because I'm not winning. Yeah. And there's this idea of winning at role-playing, which is sort of poisonous to the game. Absolutely. You know, every time I think about this, I think of Tetris. And I know that sounds stupid, but (laughs) but, but, let me me go down the list here. 
when I'm playing Tetris, my w- number one goal is to not have any little shitty diagonally aligned blocks that are floating on their own. You know, like I don't want any. I, I don't want to spend a bunch of time clearing out Tetris trash out of the bottom of the of the little Tetris square. So I'm trying to play perfect. I have to make it so that everything is perfectly aligned. I don't leave any holes in in my my array of blocks while I'm waiting for that one that's four in a row. In a role playing game, that's the same way I play. I don't leave any mistakes behind. I don't leave anywhere for the DM to go ha ha. I don't leave any place. I, I don't leave any skills that I don't have so that the other players at the table can also have a skill. Or something to do. <laughs> I try real hard to do these things, but I know that as a power gamer, I've seen other people do this. I know that I'm guilty of this as well, of being like, oh, I'll cover everything. I need to build a character that can do everything, because what if anyone else tried to do anything? Then I wouldn't be winning. <laughs> yeah, there's this idea that uh, you're basically going solo. Like, I need to make a character that can win this game by himself. Because Lord knows I can't count on the party. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, it, in Tetris... It's okay to be that way. It's okay to play obsessively and not leave any holes in your blocks. Because you're just setting yourself up to lose a game that is essentially just a puzzle. But in role-playing games, that crap at the bottom of the screen, all those little extra blocks that you didn't pick up, that's story. Yeah. The the little gaps of uh, blocks there is essentially plot hooks. Those are interesting NPCs. Those are interactions with other players. And what you do when you try to win the game is essentially just say, no matter what comes out of the DM's mouth, whatever he says is in this dungeon, whatever he says is the leader of this kingdom, I will handle it no matter what, period. I will win at this game. Yeah, I have already mastered every little aspect of the game. I already know every rule. I know anything he could do. I've got a counter for everything he would like to do. And... You know, it's funny because when you build characters like that, you feel like, oh, I'm doing this right. I'm building a character for this this role-playing game that has an answer to everything and is perfect. He's a well-rounded character. That's what I'm telling myself. But he's not because he's immune to plot hooks. Imagine if you were playing Scrabble with your friend. It's perfect because you pull dice out of, or sorry, you pull letters out of the bag, you put the words down, and then you spin it around, and the other person does the same thing. Okay, now you're playing role-playing games with a friend, and he generates a, a scenario and spins the table or, or spins it around and says, here's the scenario, how do you react? And you go, well, I do this. And he goes, well, then this happens. And you go, well, then this happens. And it's fun because you have this kind of interplay and counterplay. Imagine if you were playing Scrabble, except that you were playing as the Super Ultra King and you uh, got to deny your opponent tiles whenever you wanted to. Well, yeah, it's, you know, like I like the Scrabble analogy because it is a back and forth that also builds on what other people have done. Absolutely. I play this word. You play that off of it. We're using what we put into the game to put more into the game. Whereas if you're trying to win at role-playing, you're essentially turning the board around, put, putting tiles down, and then just keep putting tiles down and never turning the board back to the other players. Like if you had a Scrabble tile that said skip a turn on it. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> like, just, ah, skip a turn. You just kept handing it to everyone who's like, you don't get to play any tiles. I'm just going to play as many words as I possibly can until we run out. And this is, I feel like this is the number, I, I try to work on this regularly, to not be that kind of role player. And the reason I try to not be that kind of role player is because that's the exact kind of role player that dungeon masters cannot tolerate. Like, well, it's other players can't tolerate oh, no. that as well. Oh, no, absolutely. Because I'm, you make a character, like, okay, I go in, I've got my character, he's this cool ranger. He's got a great backstory, he's got like a little animal companion, and he's got a backstory... And, you know, he's, he's great at nature, but he's, he's kind of weird around other people or in city environments. He's got some weaknesses. And then he shows up, and your wizard is like, I cast win, and we will take all of the treasure and leave this dungeon. And he uh, goes, oh, can my animal... Ca- I sacrifice your animal companion for more spells for the day. Yeah, it's worth it, by the way, because spells are worth more than animal companions. I've math-hammered it out, and if you don't let me do this, you're actively hurting the party. You don't want to actively hurt the party, do you? No. So, yeah. The uh, the moral of this story is play to play instead of playing to win, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's, there are certain games where playing to win is the whole point, and, and we'll get into some of those eventually. I'm sure we'll probably talk about Hackmaster if it ever goes out of print, <laughs> or anything along those lines where the game is you know actively adversarial. I feel like 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons, Iron Kingdoms, these are games that can be played as actively adversarial. The DM is trying to kill you, and you're trying to kill his characters, <laughs> and that's the game. 
And that it's okay if a game is balanced enough to the point where the DM can literally be like, I've, oh, I'm going to kill you. And you go, nope. <laughs> Good, great. Way, way to design a game. That's, that's perfect. That would be really fun to play a game that, that, that's that tightly designed. Well, if yeah, it and again, it depends on the design space. If it's such that you can make a character as optimized as you want, but still be in some danger... That's great. Even if you're like, I'm super optimized, and there's very little that will challenge me, if the game is balanced enough that it's, you can't get to that, I just say I win, and so I win. Yeah. Luckily for us, we primarily discuss old and out-of-print role-playing games here, so we can't dive headfirst into a long discussion about 3rd edition wizards. <laughs> they win. <laughs> and why they win is just so frustrating. Um, instead, what we're going to do is haul this thing back around to discussing Tales from the Floating Vagabond. Remember that? Hey. Uh, <laughs> that mildly for- forgettable game. Let's, uh, let's do what we do. Well, what were your favorite and least favorite things about Tales from the Floating Vagabond? Uh, definitely my favorite thing about this game is the, the way that it is written. It is so well written. Uh, both the, like, I mean, like we said, the rules are very tight, but it's very, uh, well written for jokes. It's got a great flow to how it explains things. Uh, it doesn't overuse the jokey aspects of things. It's not, you know, every sentence is trying to be a punchline. But it also is very good at setting up this universe where punchlines happen constantly. Absolutely. And your least favorite thing? My least favorite thing is... I'm probably going to have to go with, oddly enough, I'm going to say the shticks. I love the concept of shticks. I love them when you look at them. I mean, you first look at them and you think, this is amazing. I get this cool, awesome, almost fiat power of I have some narrative control. I have something that I know I can do. And it's this, like, really impressive effect, like, an effect that you would normally see from, like, a really high-level character in something else. But the fact remains that after you look at it for a while, you begin to realize, no, that, that that's all I have. It would be like if you're playing a wizard and they said, you can pick any ninth-level spell and you can cast that at will. However, that is your only spell. And when everything, when all you can cast is transmute rock to mud, everything starts looking like a rock. And your shtick is going to be, how can I work my shtick into this situation? Whatever situation it is, how can I work my shtick in it? How can I make cream pies be at my advantage during this drinking game? Enders don't. Transmute rock to mud is sixth level. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. I don't even know if that's right. So anyway, uh, okay, I I, I fully agree. And that is a problem you're going to run into. You're going to be constantly trying to drag the game back around to how, how your character can make its airplanes don't fly. Or how your character can guess anything about a person, which is the Merlin effect that we didn't previously discuss. Uh, or that you can constantly fit through cracks and things. And you know what? That's one of those problems that you run into when you build a character who's got some core dynamic. Um, one of the, the old adages to properly playing a good Dungeons & Dragons game is, No shapeshifters. <laughs> are, are there changelings in this game? No changelings. Because they will immediately be changelings, and that's all they'll ever do. Oh, I turn into the guy who's currently talking. I turn into uh, I turn into Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yes, ah, stop yes. it! The second you give someone the ability to change shape, they become Disney's Aladdin. You are Robin Williams as the genie, constantly doing stupid things. Yeah. It, it, so that's the same problem in this game, except that everyone is a shapeshifter all the time, with some specific core element. So uh, I'm gonna go. My favorite thing with this game. Almost definitely going to be my favorite thing with the last game. I like games that have simple, easy-to-understand play mechanics. And this game gives you a score in a, in a skill and a score in a stat. So you take your your nimble rating and your swing-pointy things rating, and you smack them together, and then you roll under that number on a d10, and that's it. You're done. Did you hit? You do some damage. Yay! That's easy. Yeah. No, I I mean, it does. I, I will grant it. The, the actual system in this uh, is very simple. I like it when mechanics get out of the way. And I, I say this as someone who just admitted to being someone who completely abuses mechanics constantly. <laughs> I, it's instinctive. I don't want to be that guy. I just am. I've got my two-month chit. <laughs> uh, John's my sponsor. But, uh, You're stronger than this man. I totally am. 
But I love games that make it hard for me to do that or not worth it for me to do that because the mechanics are simple and they get out of the way and you can just play the story. I like games where you can just play the story. Uh, least favorite thing in this book is going to be... I'm probably going to go with the inventory or the item system. Uh, there's a lot of items in the game. There's all kinds of guns and chainsaws and so mm-hmm. on that are just... Most of them are jokes and most of them are either useless or you can't let the party have them. Well, yeah, I mean, it's going to range from... What is this? A pistol, or what is this? An orbital station laser. Right. Why do you need the stats for that? I mean, it's got a bunch of spaceships and so on. The other funny thing about this book is it's got a ton of inventory items that it tells you that you shouldn't have or can't have. <laughs> like, like uh, here's an awesome space fighter. There are only two, and here are the people that have them. <laughs> so, uh. so you can't get them, uh, which is, I, I don't know, it feels like wasted space in a 96-page book. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, basically, notes to anyone writing a game... If you put something in your game and then feel the need to put a note in that says players probably shouldn't have this, don't put it in your game. Yeah, absolutely true. Because all it does is make the players obsessed with getting it. Yeah. They'll read that and be like, oh, I need that sphere that lets me transmute dimensions. And they'll, they'll say, well, Arethon Kincaid has one, and that's it. Oh, well, who's he? Is he that guy that gave us an adventure and he's generally really nice and buys us drinks? Because I think we need to kill him. Or, you know, okay, well, I'm going to use some stupid thing to try and pick his pocket. I'm, I'm going to trade him a bunch of pies. Yeah, it, it's, it, anytime you put, hey, this is, this is really, really good, like, absurdly good and powerful, but don't let him have it, that is immediately player speak for, seek this out, get this, get this immediately. What is this, a wish spell? Cast wish at every opportunity. In in Dungeons & Dragons terms, it's the same problem you run into when you have books like Deities and Demigods, where they stat out the gods. Why do you stat out the gods? So that the players can go kill them. Yeah. It's, it's not so that they can read them and be like, ah, Bast. I see that Bast, the cat god, has wicked sweet boobs and, uh, <laughs> and uh, 4,000 hit points. Oh, well, that's interesting. Anyway, moving along. No, it's so you can go kill him. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the same problem I'm going to run into with this game. So I feel like inventory systems should be simple. Here, here's a gun, here's a different gun. That's, you know, if you need stats for a different gun. If you have two different sets of stats in your game for pistols, then you're doing it wrong. There should be pistol. Yeah. If, if there are different stats in your games for things, it should be an actual functional difference of, like, what is this? Trades out damage for range, mm-hmm. or whatever, but don't just be like, what is this? It is a pistol. What is this? A pistol that does more damage. Oh, I, I guess I'll get that one. Exactly. Alright, so, would you play this game? Oh, good lord, no. Like, I mean, maybe someone could talk me into playing a session of this mm-hmm. if I was... And, and they even suggest you do this if I was drunk. You know, if I'm sitting around drinking... Or the aforementioned, I'm out backpacking somewhere and have nothing better to do. You know, sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and make up a character. That's fine. Good lord knows I'm not looking at any nature while I'm out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is, but it is definitely a game that if someone's like, I'm gonna run this, we're gonna have a campaign, I'd be like, please don't. Let's run something else. I would run this game, I would play this game rather, as a one shot. I would say, alright guys, let's make some goofball characters, and for the next hour, we're going to play this game. And as soon as you kill the big bad MacGuffin, we're done. I don't care about your story after that, we're done. These Those characters retire and live at the bar. The end. Huh. I would play it in that respect probably once. And even then, I would be hesitant to play even once, because I'd look at it and go, but why? Like, doing a one-shot of other games... You can try and play other one-shots in that universe and do things, but I feel like even just after one game of Floating Vagabond, I'd be like, okay, I get it. I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I would, I still think I'd play this game once because it's funny. I spent $12 on this game, bought it in a used bookstore, and this is the second time I've spent $12 on this game. Uh, because, and this is the first time I'll ever note anything about the game's physical nature. This book is fragile. It's famously fragile. It falls apart. Uh, the, the joke for this game is that people thought it came with a DM screen because the cover comes off. <laughs> uh, my copy's still in super good shape. I'm trying to keep it that way, but this is the second time I bought it because my first one disintegrated. This book is uh, it, it's a piece of crap in terms of binding. So, uh, I, But 
like I was saying, I spent $12 on it twice. I feel like it was worth it. For a game I'll probably never play and don't really want to, I still feel like I made a good investment. It's funny, it's an interesting read, it's an interesting historical footnote in comedy games. I feel like I, I got a good investment out of buying it. So if you ever see this game in a used bookstore, and you will because it's not fun to play, <laughs> pick it up, flip through it, read it. It doesn't take very long, it's a good read. So, we've just about hit an hour's worth of yammering on about this game. It'll drop to under an hour after I cut out all of my ums. Tune in next week when we review Prime Directive, the Starfleet Universe role-playing game. I spent $12 on Starfleet Universe, the Prime Directive role-playing game, and I wish I had not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So thanks again for tuning in to System Mastery. As always, you can visit us on the website or on Facebook or on Twitter or at systemmasterypodcast.com at gmail.com. Uh, we basically covered the web in the System Mastery name, so you can find us anywhere and tell us that you hate this. Thank you. And, and good night. And good night. Good night.